0: Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, uh, City of Church, it's good to see all of you here on this bright, sunny, joyful morning. It's awesome. Uh, man, uh, we've been walking through the book of John, the gospel of John, this whole year. Um, nothing fancy, uh, super simple, just chapter by chapter walking through to find out who this Jesus is. And uh, we'll be in chapter 17 this morning. Um, Uh, But for the last few chapters, Jesus has been kind of like telling, essentially, his disciples um, the the essentials before he leaves, right? So he's saying, hey, here's what you need to know. I'm about to leave, and so here, let me just prep you for this. And he finishes up this discourse in in, uh, chapter 16, and he goes right into this prayer in chapter 17, okay? So he just taught all this stuff, and now he's in chapter 17, and it's simply uh, just this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays. So that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, But before we get there, I want to ask a question. Who in here is a good eavesdropper, okay? Like, let's be honest, okay? You're a decent eavesdropper. You're in the DMV, and you're like, you know the person next to you better than they think you know them, right? And so there's that. But like, eavesdropping is basically where you look like you're paying attention to something, but you're actually listening to something else kind of sneakily, right? Okay, but but the follow-up question, um, have you ever eavesdropped, and from that eavesdropping, actually got to know somebody better, Like, I got to know them, like, in a more truer sense. Well, um, for those of you that know my wife, Kristen, you probably think she's, like, this sweet little angel, right? Which is partially true, okay? Like, she, she is incredible. She's pure. She's sweet. She's way more sanctified than I am. But I remember the first few months of dating, I'm thinking, like, does she have a wild side? Like, is there something I can unlock in her that's, like, a little crazy, you know? And so I'm like, is she? can she get weird? Because I'm weird, and if she's not weird, I'm gonna look even weirder than I am, right? And so I'm, like, questioning everything about life and about our relationship, and just really serious stuff, guys. And so, um, anyways— we're hanging out at her at her house, and her best friend calls, and so she um, goes into. This is three months into dating. She goes into her bedroom and she's talking to her friend, and so I pause the notebook um, so we wouldn't miss anything for the fourth time we watched it, and so I'm like hanging out, you know, and I just kind of been listening into her conversation with her best friend, right? Like, just the, like hey, who who is you know Kristen? What's she gonna say? And and as I listened in, as I eavesdrop in this conversation, I felt like I got to hear a different side of Kristen. A a truer side. Like, she was laughing and telling jokes and being weird and funny, and, and she fully had her guard down. And then I heard her say, I like him. Like, I really, really like him. And I'm like, thank you, Lord, right? Like, I'm all pumped. But by the way, women in the room, can you just tell that to our faces? Like, girls trying to play hard to get till the day your husband dies. Like, I maybe should have told them the way I truly felt. Like, just maybe, just tell us that, yeah, you think of us once. Okay, I know our heads might be a little bit big, but anyways, um, it's worth it. And so in that conversation that I eavesdrop on, though, the, the conversation that I listened to, I got to discover who Kristen really was, and I got to find out how she thought of me because I listened in. And in the same way, in John 17, Jesus graciously allows us to eavesdrop on his conversation with him and his father. And from this prayer, we get to know Jesus better, and we get to know how he thinks of us and how he prays for us. Isn't that awesome? To be able to hear Jesus and say, what do you truly think of me? I'm not in the room. I'm listening in the, what what do you think of me, and how are you going to talk to your Father about me? That's the point of John 17, that we get to hear the heart of our Savior toward his Father and toward us. So um, that's where we'll be. John 17, let's start by reading verses 1 through 5. Sorry, I don't have that sweet voice like Brandon, uh, but I'm going to go. Okay, so when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Point one, very simply, we get to hear Jesus pray for himself. We get to hear Jesus pray for himself. Now, this is referred to as uh, Jesus's high priestly prayer. So in your Bibles, it might say on top of it, like a chapter title, high priestly prayer. But what does that mean? Well, once a year, the high priest would go into a place called the Holy of Holies, and he would atone, he would pay for his sins and for the sins of um, the people. And, and this was no joke, by the way. Like, dude had a rope tied around his leg so that if he died in there, they could just pull him out. Like, not a super, like, sweet thought, but nonetheless, like, like— the, it, the, the place was so holy because of God's presence that they were afraid that even if they stepped in to that room out of London, they would die. Like that's how, that's how crazy and holy the Holy of Holies is. It's a fitting name, right? And so anyways, um, in John 17, this is the Holy of Holies of the gospel record. This moment right here in John 17 is the Holy of Holies. We get to eavesdrop on Jesus' conversation with the Father as Jesus is about to pay for our sins, right? Like, do you see the correlation and the relation in that? This is the Holy of Holies. It's a beautiful moment. It's, and, and listen, it, this isn't a teaching of Jesus, by the way. He's not like, hey, take your pens out and, like, write some stuff. This is a conversation between him and his Father. And we get to listen in. It's a grace that we get to hear and listen what Jesus prays for and so the first thing he prays for is his desire to return to the Father and his desire to give eternal life to his followers. So Hebrews 12 two says that, uh, if you look it up, it says that, G, uh, um, uh, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So there was a joy set before Jesus, and that's the reason he endured the cross. But what is that joy, right? Like, what, why, why did he endure the cross? It wasn't that nice of a thing. So, like, why did he pay that price for us, Well, I believe in these first five verses, we see that the two joys Jesus was looking forward to, and the first is returning and seeing his Father, returning and seeing his Father. And so in verse five, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay, that's verse five. So listen, before the world existed, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided to create man, Now, knowing man would rebel, God has always had a plan in place to solve the sin problem and bring us to him. And Jesus's role in this whole equation, this whole thing, would be to come to earth, live a perfect and holy life for rebellious people, and then die a rebel's death in their place. This meant that the Son of God, Jesus, would have to become a man laying aside his divine power and coming down to earth. So think about this. Jesus... God Jesus left eternal heaven with ultimate glory, infinite praise, infinite ease, and came down to earth where he had to walk miles to get places. Like he, he, he gave that up, and so he had to learn words as a baby. He had to have his diaper changed. He had to feel what growing pains feel like because he took on flesh. That was his role. He did that for you not that beautiful? Like, this is what Jesus is doing. And so that's, that's what it, uh, it meant. And so when he's saying, glorify me, like, like before the world existed, that's what he's saying. Before I came down to rescue my people, glorify me to that spot. Before I came down to take on flesh, glorify me back to that spot. Jesus was looking forward to be, being reunited with the Father and the Spirit. It'd be a reunion of the Trinity as it was before, I was thinking about singing reunited and it feels so good, but uh, that is not a father, son, Holy Spirit song to sing. So <laughs> cancel that out of the recording, please. Uh, but anyways, uh, one God, right? One God existing in three persons, persons being uni- reunited in the most beautiful, holy unity that ever has existed. But before the, uh, we, Jesus would have the glory of heaven, he would have the glory of the cross, right? See, see, the cross displayed the love of God like nothing else ever would. Like, it, it, it's absolutely crazy. So Jesus prays in verse one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify y- you. So Jesus didn't want glory for glory's sake. He's not just like, hey, let me just get glory so I have glory. No, his joy came from knowing that his Father would be revealed. So in the cross, we see God's love of holiness and hatred of sin right? Um, We see God's vast love for us and that he paid for our redemption, a costly price, his own son. And if Jesus had stopped short of the cross, if he said, man, I'll go all that way, but I'm going to, I can't do the cross, that would have proved that there was a degree of love which God is not prepared to pay for us. But the cross proves that there is no limit to God's love. Amen. Isn't that good to say, no, 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 the cross is the ultimate expression. And Jesus said, no, even the most costly thing, I will pay for my people. The God who created the universe saw his son covered in spit from the people that he came to save. Mocked and scorned, gasping for his final breaths as the sin of the world pours on Jesus' pure heart. The cross was the only way to display the true, infinite depths of God's love for you and for me. And so when Jesus says in verse 4 that he has glorified the Father by accomplishing um, what he gave him to do, it's kind of weird, right? Like, Jesus, I don't know if you're mixed up chronologically. Like, I know you can kind of see, like, before and after and stuff, but you haven't really done the cross thing yet, right? Like, I, I don't know. You might want to wait till you say you've finished the, the work. And, and that could have talked about a lot of different things. He, he's talking about um, uh, shepherding and keeping the disciples, and he finished that work. But one commentator specifically says that he spoke with such confidence because nothing could stop him from what he set out to do. He he says, I finished the work. As in, like, dude, anyone tries to get my way, I will bust them down. Like, I'm going for my people. And so think about this. The nails that would sink into Jesus' wrist have already been forged. The cross that Jesus would be hung on is already grown from a tiny seed into a big tree and chopped down and formed into a cross. The man that would sink the nail into his, uh, arm, would, would, would have already been born as a baby, grown up, and given the opportunity and the strength to swing a hammer. Everything's set. Jesus is saying, I'm going through. I'm confident. I have finished the work. It's going to happen. There, there's, no, there's no plan B. This has been plan A since the very beginning. I'm going to do this for my people. Jesus displays the Father's glory, and he is glorified. And so the second thing that we find Jesus looking forward to is offering eternal life to his rebellious people. So first was to return to his Father and glorify his Father. The second thing was to offer eternal life to you and I. And so look at verses two and three. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus says that the Father gave him the authority to give eternal life to the people the Father gave him. Okay, now I can just imagine Jesus hanging out with his friends when he's little, and uh, and they're like, uh, the kid's like, yeah, my dad, he lets me blow out the candles before bed. What's your dad do? Jesus is like, give eternal life. You know, like, like whoa, okay, like that, you one up, you know, like that's a little bit of a gap. And so, um, but, but we have to ask the question, what is eternal life? So if you know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you kind of want to figure out what, what the answer to this question is. What is eternal life? And maybe how do you get it? Well, Jesus says eternal life is knowing God personally. Not just knowing about him, uh, but having a personal relationship with him through faith in Jesus. John fourteen six says that Jesus is the only way to know the Father. We can't know the Father without him. Um, uh, and then it's not simply enough to believe in God. Like, belief in God doesn't save anyone from an eternal hell. No, James 2, 19 says that the demons, even the demons, believe and tremble at God. So they believe in God, too. And so, so it's not just simple belief in God, and Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders prove that we can be f- our, our schedules and our lives can be filled with religious duty, and yet we are still lost and we don't know God. City life, eternal life isn't for good people, good, cause, Because cause good people don't exist. Like like we're all messed up and we need a savior. We can't make it on our own. Eternal life isn't something you earn or you eventually get. It's a gift given to you because you've admitted, I, I don't have any other way. I need you. It's not, you don't get eternal life by trying harder, doing better, stop doing this. It's a gift when we admit we're sinners, turn from our sin and believe in Christ alone. And I got to baptize my friend this last Sunday and it was beautiful. And I stood before her family and friends and said, baptism is not for good people. It's for bad people that have admitted we need a perfect Savior. So just to say, in the room, eternal life, not for good people, for bad people that need to be given a gift. And so w- w- what does it mean to know Christ? Like, what, it, what does it actually mean? So we know that eternal life is knowing Christ, but what does it mean to know Christ? Well, knowing Christ isn't simply knowing about him or having the facts down everyone in the room, we can go around and say, hey, what do we know about George Washington, our first president? And you can list all the facts, when he was born, all these things. But none of us in the room actually know George Washington, do we? And in the same way, we can know that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, that he had 12 disciples, that he did miracles, and that his mom was Mary, and yet we don't actually know him. Like, so facts don't mean knowledge. It's a, there's an intimacy that comes with it. There's a, there's a deep knowing that comes with it. It's it's not just a one-time thing and you know someone. It's a continual relationship. And so continue to know Jesus, to dig into who he is. Friends, we will never know Jesus well enough this side of eternity. We won't. So continue to strive and press in and know him better. So let me illustrate this with my wife, you know, the the wild one. Um, uh, if at any point in our relationship, and married people in the room, you know this too, if at any point in our relationship I decide that I know Kristen well enough and I stop taking your on dates and I stop asking your questions and I stop searching your heart, what does that do to our marriage? It sinks it. Like, like if, I, if I do that, that wouldn't be a good marriage at all. And in the same way, in our relationship with Jesus, don't assume you know him well enough so you can just coast for the rest of your life. Press into his heart, spend time with him, enjoy him. And so if the way we get eternal life is through knowing Jesus, let me ask a question. What do you think Satan's goal is? If that's how we know eternal life, what do you think Satan's goal is? Well, it's to get us to think we know Christ when we really don't. Simply put, that's the way he's gonna trick us. So some of us are tricked into thinking, man, we'll go to heaven because we got baptized or we go to church, some thinking, us why, why are you going to have eternal life? Well, because I, I've been a good Christian, and I stopped cussing. Listen to me. Satan's ambition is opposite of Jesus's. And so Satan loves people desiring eternal life. He does. But he wants to trick them in thinking that it's in other places. So he says, yes, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. Satan's saying, pursue eternal life. And yet he would direct you to find it in some place different than knowing Christ. That's going to be his ambition, right? Because I prayed a prayer when I was eight, I think I'm good. Because I raised my hand, because I stood up, because I went to Sunday school, no, all of those mean absolutely nothing outside of faith in Jesus. Our only hope, our only defense, our only assurance is that we know Christ and Christ knows us. So Satan will tempt you, by the way, to be complacent in your knowing about Jesus. But press into his heart and character. It's not about more information, it's about true transformation by knowing the grace of Jesus. That's the joy set before him. That's what he's praying about in these first five verses. The coming glory that he will reveal and experience and his prayer for his people to be redeemed and spend all of eternity with him. But what, what does he think about these people? What is he thinking about the people he's gonna save? Does he, does he like them? Does he tolerate them? Is it, is it an obligation? Well, let's read in verses six through 19 and uh, find out. Verses six through 19. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, this is key, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, so sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth." Second point, simply Jesus, or we get to hear Jesus pray for his disciples. We get get to hear Jesus pray for his disciples. Um, Notice that he says, you gave me, several times in this passage. If you look through uh, verse 2, verse 6 twice, verse 9, and verse 11, he says, you gave me. That's a unique language to talk about sinful people, right? It's almost as if Jesus is thankful that the Father gave him these people. Now, we naturally tend to think of Jesus as the Father's gift to us, right? Like John 3, 16, the Father gave his only son. But Jesus affirms that the Father's gift to Jesus is us. Do You see that? The father, the ones you gave me, the, the ones you gave me, there's this joy, there's this kind of like, like internalizing of thank you. Like, I'll receive them and I'm excited. So, yes, Jesus is our gift, but he would also affirm that we are his gift that the father gives us. Re- uh, Ephesians 5 um, refers to the church, the people that have trusted in Jesus as his bride, as his bride. So that's who you are, by the way. If you trust in Jesus, you're his beloved, cherished bride. Like he cares for you so intimately. One of my favorite parts of the weddings I get to do is when, when the bride you know, walks down the aisle and I look at the dad and I ask him, Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And every single time, without fail, teary eyed, the dad proudly says, I do. Like I, 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 give, I give her to him proudly. And in the same way, should anyone ask, who gives these sinners to this Savior, the Father in heaven enthusiastically says, I do. I give them to him. Isn't that awesome to think of yourself in that way? Like, it's, just, it's, it's, it's incredible. And so knowing that Jesus views us as a gift, that's the way he views us, what does he pray for us? What does he pray for his disciples? And in these verses, Jesus prays for two primary things. And the first is protection. Okay, he prays for protection. So look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, so tracking together, Satan is defeated eternally because of Jesus' death and resurrection. But the strategy of Satan is that he knows he's lost, but he wants to convince us otherwise. Right? So the good news is that God keeps his own. In verse 12, Jesus just celebrates and says, man, I've kept them, and they're here, and I'm never going to lose them. And, 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 and man, I've talked to so many people in, in my life in the last few years that are afraid, I mean, like deathly afraid of losing their, their salvation. And myself, personally, I have had fears, man, what if I mess up again? Is God going to be done with me? What if I fall back into that old thing? Can, can I lose my salvation? Right? So I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it's a real fear for a lot of us in the room. But here's the good news. You ready for it? Our safety depends on the nature of God, not on our character or conduct. Jesus paid the price in full for our sins. We are saved not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. When Jesus was on earth, he kept his disciples and didn't lose anyone. And uh, and do you really think that now Jesus, glorified in heaven, won't be able to take care of us? to glorify Jesus. So he on earth in his limited human body can take care and, and, and keep his disciples. Do you really think that there's a separation and now that he's in heaven, he can't take care of us? He and the Father together with the Holy Spirit are surely able, they're the trifecta that's able to guard all believers. So like the Father tags the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit runs in, dropkicks someone that's trying to overthrow you, right? Like he's like, uh-uh, they're mine. Like don't, you need to back off or I'm going to dropkick you again and I'm going to send Jesus in. So like I'm just saying that there, there's this beautiful reality for us that says, man, like you're, you're secure because of me, not because of you. You're secure because I'm holding you, not because you're holding me. And looking even deeper into this, God's people are the Father's gift to his son, right? We've already discussed that. But do you think that the Father would give his son a gift that wouldn't last? A gift that could possibly be taken away? No. So whenever you feel as though the Lord is far from you, Whenever you feel like, man, I, I might have lost it. I've messed up again. I see. The Lord seems so far away. Read John 17 and remember the way Jesus prays for you. And then read Romans 8 and, and rejoice that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He's holding on to me forever, eternally. And I get just get to celebrate that and live in that. Jesus prays for your eternal security. And you can be assured that the Father will answer that prayer. But what about Judas? Right? Some of us in that room, well, what about Judas? Right? Like, was he secure? How did he fall? Why didn't Jesus keep him safe? Well, simply put, Judas was never one of Christ's own. Like, Jesus faithfully kept all the Father gave him, gave him right? That's what he says. But Judas had never been given to him by the Father. He knew about Jesus, but didn't know Jesus. And so Judas isn't an example of a believer losing his salvation. He's an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation and was finally exposed as a fraud. That's the distinction. Jesus keeps all whom the Father gives him. He prays for our protection, and you better believe he's strong enough to keep us. So that's the protection. Jesus prayed for protection, but he also prays for sanctification. That's the second thing, sanctification. Verse 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Now in these verses, uh, Jesus starts to draw this contrast between the world and the word, right? Which is really how sanctification works. So uh, if you're new to that word, sanctification or sanctify is a word used in the Bible. And it simply means the eternal, or I'm sorry, the lifelong process of us becoming more like Jesus and less like the world, Okay, it's a separation from the world to be more like Jesus. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word, but the world hates them. Okay, there's such a difference, right? So the world, on one hand, competes for the Father's love, but the word of God says we can just enjoy the love of God, right? The love of the Father. So the world says you've got to earn your way to God, and the word of God says Jesus earned that for you. The world says you're too messy, you're too broken to to come to God, and and the word of God says no, no, no. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That, you know, there's such a distinction between the world and the word. And one of the first steps toward a worldly life is neglecting the word of God. And the opposite of true, one of the first steps to truly experience eternal life and Jesus' love and sanctification is admiration of this book. It's that to be in it and live in it and love it and take it everywhere you go. D.L. Moody, he wrote in the front of his Bible, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Those are your two options. Friends, the Bible will be an indispensable resource for your sanctification an indispensable resource. So uh, just ask yourself these questions. Uh, There's three, and you can write them down, or you can just think about them. But three questions that kind of help you discern, hey, where am I at? What am I living in this week? The first is, are you shaped by the world or the word? Are you shaped by the world or the word? Second, are you shaped by the news or the good news of the gospel? And last one is, are you shaped by the culture or the cross? Just asking yourself those questions as you go through, man, what's shaping me? What's influencing? What's moving my mind into a certain direction? It's either it's going to be one or the other. It's not going to be neutral. So those questions would be super helpful. So we are in the world, but Jesus says we're not of the world, and we can't live like the world, right? So some of us are like, dude, this whole world thing, just take me out, Jesus. Like it'd be a lot easier to be out of the world than in the world, but that's not what Jesus prays for. He says, I'm not praying that you get out of the world. I'm praying that you're kept from the evil one. See, your battlefield is also your mission field. Like where you're going to battle with Satan is also your mission field. So don't leave the world. Go into the world and love people. Get messy. And so our attitude towards the world cannot be one of withdrawal. Hands clean. I'm stepping back, like I'm not, a, that's messy and crazy, and I'm staying clear from that. It can't be that. Jesus doesn't pray for that. And withdrawal has always been the temptation for the religious. And in Jesus's time, the Pharisees gave into that temptation. So to be a Pharisee, a religious leader, meant that you're a separatist. Like their whole goal in life was to, 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 to separate themselves from contaminated society, I don't want anything to do with those people. They're dirty, they're messy, and friends. I know we're like, oh, I can't believe they do that, but we fall into that trap today, too. We really, really do. We find our lives arranged so that we spend as little time as we can around non believers right? Uh, and so we attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian. We go to parties that are 100% Christian. We're okay to come to a church service that's 100% Christian, and it's not a bad thing to spend time with believers. Please do be encouraged, but it can easily become an escape so that we don't have to sign up for the uncomfortable mission God's called us to. Hey, <laughs> I'm just gonna take a step back. I'm gonna hang around with believers, get my life right, get filled up. Okay, how long are you gonna do that? Like, it's time. <laughs> you need to step into some other uncomfortable relationships. We cannot become, as John Stott called, rabbit hole Christians, where we scurry from one Christian activity to another and never rub shoulders with non-believers. We, I, I Really, I want to challenge our church to ask ourselves honestly, have we functionally removed ourselves from the world? Jesus prays we won't do that. So be clear, sanctification is not isolation. But it's also not assimilation, right? So while we're not called to isolate ourselves from the world, we're also not called to conform to the world. So um, so your life should look different. But it's tempting, isn't it? To spend our money the way the world spends their money. To to plan weddings the way the world plans weddings. To, To talk the way the world talks. To use social media the way the world uses social media. But Jesus says, man, sanctification, me working in your heart by my grace, should make you look different. In verse 16, Jesus says, they aren't of the world, just as I am not of the world. So he just clearly says, you're not of the world, but I'm of the world. So this is confusing, right? It's not assimilation. It's not isolation. It's mission. So let me just tell you how Jesus did this for you. Jesus didn't just say, hey, guys, uh, heaven's super nice, and it's sweet up here, uh, and so just work really hard and and come here. I'm just going to keep my hands clean, and you make your way here, and this will be good. No. He, he got his hands dirty, right? Like he walked for miles with people that didn't understand what he was talking about. He had dinner with notorious sinners. He affiliated with prostitutes, man. He, 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 he just spent time around people that don't think the same way that he did. It was uncomfortable. It was messy. It was dirty, and people didn't like him for that very reason. Church, you can be assured that Jesus didn't just spend his time around like-minded people, Matthew eleven nineteen 19 says that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus prayed that his followers wouldn't isolate or assimilate, but would be on mission. And for some of us in the room, because of scheduling on our lives, and I know you're busy, we have to make an intentional effort to, to, to be with those people that need Christ. Like we need Christ. I'm saying that like everyone needs Christ, but specifically people that don't know him, we need to be intentional about rubbing shoulders with them. And so implement it in your life that might, like, that might look like you taking a more active role in the PTA your kids go to school at, right? Like, or it might be play racquetball with non, your non-believing friends. Like do a solarion test and start conversations. Coach a team. Don't just invite Christians to your volleyball league or your softball league. Like invite people that don't believe the same things that you do into things you do. Befriend a barber or a hairdresser. I don't know, but go out of your way to just live intentionally around people you're around actually talk to your waitress or your waiter. Like, have a conversation with it. It doesn't have to be supernatural or crazy. Just have simple conversations with people about Jesus. So let's be very, very clear. Jesus isn't wanting to sanctify us so that we're better people. He's wanting to sanctify us so that we're, we can better be on mission for the world. That's what his desire is, that we can go into the world and share his glory and his story. or joyfully on mission because Jesus will never let us go, right? Like there's this awesome reality. Not because of duty, not because we don't want you to let us go, but because you never will let us go, therefore I go. Um, So after Jesus prays for his disciples to be protected and sanctified, he ends his prayer praying for the future church. So let's uh, read verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. given me again, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. My last point is that we get to hear Jesus pray for us we get to hear Jesus pray for us, specifically that we would be united. So let's be clear. Um, Jesus's prayer is for unity, not uniformity, okay? Unity, not uniformity. So we see that our union with Christ, being known by him and being with him, brings a unity in Christ that transcends all secondary agree- disagreements, okay? So um, let's ask a question, though. What, what What's the root of True Christian unity. Well, what's the root of it? The short answer, Jesus Christ. He's the only king that lovingly invites black, white, Asian, Hispanic, poor, rich, middle-class, upper-class, educated, uneducated, refugee, small-town farmer, uh, blue-collar, white-collar, Republican, Democrat, independent guy, girl, brown-eyes, blue-eyes, everyone, all of those people are invited and experiencing the same extravagant grace of Jesus. He's the only one. And here's what I would contend. All of our disunity, all of our disunity is banked on placing an overemphasis on secondary issues and forgetting the primary issue. Another way to put that is to say that our, I, our disunity is based on secondary definitions of who we are and forgetting our primary definition. Okay? You're a Christian. Well, yeah, but I'm Presbyterian. Oh, yeah, well, I'm Christian Missionary Alliance, so. No, like, you know, like, no, no, you're a Christian. Like, you're a Christian first, right? Like, that's who you are. And so we, we, we just need to be clear. Our disunity has, like, most of the time, it's, it's almost all the time, it's gonna be rooted in secondary issues, and we're forgetting the primary issue, Jesus. We have to look beyond the elements of our first birth. Okay, race a uh, uh, place, a uh, color, abilities. And we, we, we need to build our connection on the essentials of our new birth, Jesus. <laughs> Who are you? Well, I, I'm white. I grew up in California. Um, I, you know, I did this, went to Wesleyan. No, that's my first birth. That's what I've done. That's kind of some of those things. Who are you? Really, your second birth? I'm a redeemed son of God. Really, I am too. Awesome, we have something in common. Isn't that cool to say, hey, let's not get caught up in all these other let's get caught up in the true sense of G of Jesus. I mean it's amazing. So AW Tozer, uh, amazing theologian, he wrote this has it ever occurred to you that one hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each of each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive to closer fellowship. Make sense? The more we know of Christ, the more we are drawn to him and the more we are drawn to one another. Beautiful. We're not trying to say, hey, man, uh, let's really focus on unity. Like, yeah, it's like John 17, unity. Okay, let's just be, okay, you're unified. No, that's not how you get unity. The the way you get unity is to say, let's focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. He's saying, you're unity conscious, you don't get there. You're Jesus conscious, you're there. Jesus' prayer for unity doesn't mean that we should be the same, by the way. That's uniformity. It's easy to think that, right? Like, I remember the first place my faith in Jesus, and I was, like, looking around the room, like, I'm trying to fit in. Okay, cool. So I picked me up a WWJD bracelet. I wore that thing loud and proud. I picked myself up a John 316 shirt. I wore it almost every day. You know, I was trying to, like, look cool for my friends. I got a Jesus fish, okay? I got glass. I don't even need glasses, by the way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You'd be like, that is too far, bro. No, um, but but but, right, like, I thought it was so cool, but isn't there a temptation to do that? To to fit in, say I want to look like everybody else. I want to look like them. We tend to do it. And so sad story. My friends and I, we went to a pastors' conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And so we're driving up and we're going, and we see these groups of people that look exactly the same, like identical. And, and so we started playing this game called Point Out the Pastor, and it was sad. Okay, because every dude the exact same, like button up shirt, sleeves rolled up. Okay. Pants cuffed at the bottom. Okay, uh, uh, got boots on. I had a sh- over the shoulder bag. Okay, we got some books in there. Nice trim beard. Maybe glass. I don't know. And so we're like laughing. And I promise you, every, we're like, Pastor, boom, walks in the conference. Pastor, boom, walks in the conference. We're dying. We walk out of the car. We're like, that's so. F- oh my gosh that's what we look like. We're like, no, like, why do we do that? Like, it was like the worst feeling in the world. Um, but anyways, so, man, I fall into it. We're like, dang it, I look like a pastor. Um, but, but anyways, so that was an extremely sad story. That's the end of my sermon. Hey, let's pray. I'm just kidding. No. Um, uh, but, but friends, that's uniformity, okay? That's uniformity, looking all the same. And that's not what Jesus prays for, but that's what we tend towards. Jesus prays for unity, We're not called to be Christian clones, we're not. So in fact, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying forces in the church. It provides this judgmental inflexibility that repels people away from church and away from Jesus. Oh, you don't look like me? Sorry, you don't belong here. One of my friends, she loves 90s rap music, and so she's got this biggie small shirt, and, um, and it's like my favorite. And so um, she, she'd expressed, though, um, that she never felt free in church, that she always had to wear her best outfit. And so I told her, hey, Amanda, I, re- I really would love if you wear your biggie small shirt to church. And she's laughing, like, I can't wear it to church. You know, I'm like, no, I'm being dead serious. You should wear it. Um, did we get the picture? Boom. That's Amanda right there. Biggie Smalls, repping in church, right? So, uh, so that's amazing. And so, um, uh, and so I told her, hey, do that. And so she did it. And it was like, I was like, how do you feel? She's like, I feel really good. I got some weird looks. But for the most part, a couple people you know, walked over like, I like that you're wearing Biggie. And she's like, thanks, you know? And so anyways, but on a, seri- on a serious note, man, if we come to church, every guy in button-up shirts, every girl in, in a dress, people that are coming here for the first time probably won't feel very welcomed. I'm not saying it's bad to do those things, but there will be this awkward uniformity and they won't fit in. They don't know the right thing. They don't say the right thing. They don't look the right way. But if some people in our church are wearing suits, if some people are wearing jeans, if some people are wearing uh, shorts, if some people have dreads, if some people have tattoos, if some people don't have makeup on, then maybe when people come in, they say, wow, this is just a hodgepodge of people and I fit in. Wouldn't that be awesome to say, like, so yes, wear your suit, wear your dress, but man, what if we just, as a church, didn't look the same, and got to invite people that don't believe the same thing into our church? You can be unified and look completely different. In First Corinthians 12, Paul celebrates that Jesus, uh, or he celebrates that in the church there's different giftings for different purposes, and, and so I just think as a church, we need to do a better job of, like, of celebrating differences and unique realities, as a church, we're a mosaic. We're, we're a melting pot of the redeemed. All mixed together, different styles, different people, different colors, all this stuff all together for Jesus. There is every reason that believers should love one another and feel united. We trust the same Savior. We live, we will live one day in the same heaven. We belong to the same Father, and we seek to do the same work, which is to proclaim to the world that they're lost and the only way to be found is through Jesus Christ. So, yes. Believers do have differences, but we have much more in common, and what we have in common is much more important than what we don't have in common. This should encourage us to love one another and strive for true unity. Show the world, man, in the same way the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. We are one together. It's amazing. And as I prayed through this passage um, a couple nights ago, I'm in my house and I'm I just feel this weight of of sin. Like, like that we haven't done it right. The last word I would use to describe the church in whole is unified, today. Many of us are perfectly fine with only having Christian friends and never interacting with non-believers. Many of us don't cherish our Bibles the way we should. Many of us look a lot more like the world than we do like Jesus. Many of us have fallen into thinking that we're saved by works and not by knowing Christ. And and as I and as I repented of my own sin, and as I repented of the sin of our church, I just felt like Jesus encouraged me. I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. I yeah, I I I knew that you would choose to indulge in the world. I knew that you would choose to give in to old temptation over and over again. I knew that you would ostracize certain people and create Christian bubbles. I knew that you would fall complacent and uninterested in knowing me, and yet I still died for you. I still did it. I knew it, and I still died. I knew it all, and I took it all for you. Family, is there any better news? Is there any greater motivation to pursue unity, to pursue love, to pursue each other, and ultimately to pursue Jesus? No, no. It's amazing and simple and and profound in the same sense. We get to know his heart. And we know that Jesus' heart beats for his father's glory and for his people. And so if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't placed your faith in him yet, this is what you're getting invited into. A messy, weird, eclectic family that are broken and don't always get it right, but are loved by their heavenly father, knowing, still dying and knowing that we would mess up. That's the family you're signing up for not uniform. You don't have to look the same. You don't have to act the same. You don't have to know all the same things, but to know, man, Jesus brings us together. The only way for anyone to experience eternal life is to know Jesus. That's what he's inviting you into today. Not cleaning up your act, but to know him.